I hope all you guys are doing well. Uh, this week, I've been, it's been a difficult week for the uh, city of Claremont. I've been thinking of you guys uh, often. The Chick-fil-A has been closed temporarily for construction. Um, I hope you're all surviving, doing okay, finding meals. Uh, every day is now Sunday at Chick-fil-A in Claremont. Um, well, hopefully, we will make it through together. Uh, there, is, there is hope that we have beyond this world and beyond chicken biscuits. Um, we are continuing on in our study of the book of John. Um, so we are finishing up chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them uh, or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 uh, this morning. 23 through 25. Uh, so what we just got done in chapter 2 so far, we've had a couple of big scenes happen here. We have two kind of big stories that have played out leading up to what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, so the beginning of chapter 2, we get this story of Jesus turning water into wine, this first miracle that Jesus did, this first sign. Uh, he steps in and he takes this water that's kind of depleted and dirty in these purification jars and he fills them up with the best wine that people have had yet. And he takes what is old and he brings something new and better. And we see the same thing in the temple as Jesus marches into the temple, as Kenny showed us last week, a, a beautiful picture of what Christ says. He entered into the temple and began to flip over the tables, this righteous indignation as he goes and cleanses the temple of people who were taking advantage of those who were coming and, and also just busyness and religious activity that was happening. And Jesus comes and he empties it all and says, I am all that is needed. What can wash away your sin? Not the blood of goats, not the blood of lambs, not the blood of oxen. But the blood of Jesus, my blood, I am the sacrifice once and for all that can stand as a substitute for you. I am all that you need. And he's taking what was old in the old covenant and replacing it with something new and better, namely himself. And so then we get to verses 23, 24, and 25 today, and we see an interesting response from the people that were there seeing this. So verse 23, uh, John writes, now when he, talking about Jesus, uh, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So pause for a second. So hear what's happening here in this verse. There, uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. He goes and cleanses the temple. He's turned water into wine, although there weren't many people who saw that miracle. And so John says that he doesn't write all of the miracles of Jesus down in this book. So there's possible that maybe he did some others while he was there. And many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw Jesus and said, it is, it is unbelievable what he's doing. The authority with which he speaks. His ability to be able to control creation. This must truly be the Son of God. We believe in him. And so it seems like a good thing so far. Verse 23, Jesus comes, he's doing signs. People see those signs and believe in him. But it's interesting to me, verse 24 and 25, what Jesus' response is to those people. Verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Now, why? Why would he do that? Because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Weird, right? I don't know, when I read this for the first time, I go... That's a strange way for Jesus to respond. That's not how I would expect him to respond. If someone believes in him, you would think he would come and accept them and trust himself to them, not pull himself away from them. So what is happening here? And so the question, I want to ask one question this morning. 
The question I want to ask is, what type of belief was this that these Jewish people had? What type of belief was this? So they saw the signs, they believed in him, but Jesus pulled away. So what type of belief did they have? So I want to walk through a number of different scenarios. Okay, so I think that this could be a number of different types of beliefs. Uh, and so I want, to, I want to list through those and then kind of examine and go, okay, is this in fact what it is? And then at the end, we'll look and see what we should really believe, what our belief should look like. So three types of possibilities I see this belief could be. I see three different kinds of options. One, I think this could in fact be true saving belief, true belief that Jesus decided to wait to entrust himself to them. So perhaps these Jewish people did have true belief, the type of belief that the Bible says saves you. But Jesus said, okay, hold on, just wait a second because you've still got some stuff messed up there with your life. So I'm going to pull myself away because I know what's in man. And man is desperately wicked. So I'm not going to entrust myself yet. You work yourself up a little bit, kind of get your understanding a little bit better, get your life a little bit more in order, and then I can come and entrust myself to you. That's one possibility that I see. But the problem with that is if you look elsewhere through the Gospels, particularly even in the first two chapters of John, look at the people that Jesus has already entrusted himself to. A few teenagers that were fishermen that don't even appear to be very good fishermen. They're kind of boneheaded throughout the entire Gospels that at some points are brash and stupid and backstabbing. These are the people that Jesus has already entrusted himself to. And then you look forward in some of the other Gospels, you see Jesus also entrusts himself to lepers, people who were considered by the entire nation of Israel ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean. We, we, we can't come anywhere near these people. They are broken. They are, they are unclean. They need to be separated from the rest of us. And Jesus comes and he entrusts himself to them. Prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. These are the people that Jesus hung out with, that he ate with, that he entrusted himself to. So I don't think that Jesus would go, okay, yes, you have true belief, but you need to make yourself a little bit better before I come around. That's not how Jesus works. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel comes in our worst and comes and says, I will accept you as you are if you will believe in me. So I think that we see that's not what's happening here. So that we can cross that off the list. Okay, it's not that one. What else may it be? Well, maybe this is, in fact, true belief that they would one day lose. Maybe this is true belief that one day they would lose. That they, in fact, yes, they believed and they were saved, but Jesus could see in their hearts. He knew man, and he knew that one day, that yes, they believed now and were saved, but sometime in the future they would walk away. And so he said, no, I'm not going to entrust myself to them. We see some other examples of, of this, even in the book of John, almost, it seems. In um, John chapter 10, uh, Uh, In John chapter 10, though, Jesus uh, comes and he says something very different. So it seems like even in the same book that John writes and says, no, this can't quite be the case. And so in John 10, verses 24 to 29, it says that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So again, hear the crowd that's around him. It's a group of Jews who are gathering around him, a group of religious people, just like here in John 2. Jesus answered them and told them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus is saying, all those who come to me with true belief will never be able to be taken away. They will never be able to be snatched out of the Father's hand. And so if, in fact, you have true saving belief, then, friends, you will never lose that. We do not have to go day in and day out wondering, oh, have I somehow lost my salvation? No, once you are saved, you are always saved, if you are truly saved. And so that can't be the situation, then, here in John 2. This can't be true belief that they lost. So it leads us to maybe a third conclusion, that this is, in fact, a false belief that led to a divine distancing. A false belief that led to a divine distancing. So we'd look and go, okay, these Jews believed in Jesus, but that belief they had was false. It was not a true belief. And Jesus' response to that was to pull himself away. And so we see elsewhere in the book of John uh, and throughout the Bible, the New Testament, similar stories to this. In John 8.31, just a few chapters forward, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, again, hear the people that Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the religious people. He says, if, my, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here, these are the Jews who had believed him. So it's the same kind of word. You go, okay, these must then be disciples of Jesus. But 13 verses later, Jesus looks at the same group of people and says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So in verse 31, it says there are these Jews who had believed. And then verse 45, Jesus says, you do not believe me. It's kind of a similar thing we see in John 2. It's these people had believed in Jesus, but yet Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. So it must be a false kind of belief that they have. We see probably most clearly in James 2 uh, this same kind of uh, situation. We see in James 2 uh, that James is writing to this group of religious people once again. People who are saying, we believe in Jesus. We are Christians. And James writes and says, okay, your faith, your belief is not matching up with your life and your actions. These two are contradictory to one another. And so you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so there is a type of belief that even the demons have that is not salvific, it is not saving, it is a false belief. It's the same word, but it is used differently. You go, well, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? Well, we see it here in all of these examples, and we see it even in the, in, in the use of language, even in the use of the English language. We use the same word to mean various different things. For instance, listen, so I'm, gonna be, I'm about to be very vulnerable and very honest with you. This is a place where we believe the gospel saturates every moment of our lives, and so I'm going to come and be honest. I have a Yorkie Poo as my dog. It's not the manliest thing that I've ever done in my life. In fact, it's one of the more emasculating things I've ever done. He is four and a half pounds. He yaps all the time, and I love him dearly. He loves to cuddle, and I love him when he cuddles. He loves to touch humans. He always has to be touching somebody. He runs around, and he's, he's had a difficult time with the transition, the transition of bringing our daughter into the house. Because before, whenever he would get all the attention, now someone else is getting the attention. 
The first couple weeks in particular, uh, he had a really difficult time with it. He had some digestive issues from so much stress that he was having. This is not a joke. Um, he, he now constantly, every time we'll go and change her diaper, we'll get done and look at our feet, and there are five toys around our feet that he has brought to us, saying, please, remember me. Remember me. Look at my lion that I brought you. Remember how it squeaks when you throw it? Would you throw it again? And I love my dog. So there that is. Don't judge me. I can feel the judgment coming from you, but my identity is secure in Christ, and I do not need the approval of man, and I can say clearly that I love my Yorkie Poo and not have to fear any of the recommendations that come from anyone else. And last night, my wife and I were sitting there in bed because our dog sleeps with us, uh, and and often he sleeps under the covers with his head poking out above just like a human. He loves to think he's just like us. And I was sitting there, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, gosh, I love our dog, and I love you. And I thought of it, and I went, so that's the same word I'm saying there, but I mean it vastly different. I love my dog in a vastly different way than I love my wife. And I realize that that's the same word I'm using, but one, there is so much more intensity, so much more intimacy, so much more relationship than simply just a dog that that makes me happy as a wife who completes me. So it's the same word, but different meanings. And John's doing a similar thing here, and the New Testament does as well, that yes, this is the same word, believe, from the uh, Greek cognate, pistuo. It's all from the same word, but it's used differently. There are different types and levels of it. There's different levels of intimacy and relationship. We see in James 2 that here, these people believed that God is one. We see in John chapter 8, these people believed Jesus. We saw in John 2, the people believed in his name, but even the demons believe. And they shudder. This is a type of belief that intellectually goes, okay, yes, here are truths about God, and I intellectually agree with them. And not only that, but we see in James 2 that these demons have that kind of belief they know about God, and there is an emotional response to that. They shudder. And that's my fear with so many people who have grown up in the church is that's the extent of their belief, an intellectual assent and an emotional response. And never a true saving belief. See elsewhere in Matthew 7, Jesus continues this same situation in verses 21 to 23 towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So yet again, hear the crew that's here. It's religious people who have been acting in their understanding, doing everything that they've needed to do. And Jesus will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these people had a belief, but it wasn't a saving belief. And so what's the question then? We see throughout in John 2, in John 8, in James 2, and in Matthew 7, it seems like there's a recurring theme here that the people who keep coming and Jesus keeps pushing them away, keeps putting this divine distance between them, are people who are religious. I mean, you look through the Gospels and Jesus' arch enemy, right? The, the Darth Vaders of the New Testament are the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. They were the most religious people in their day. They knew the scriptures. They were living according to the law. And yet these were the people that Jesus opposed the most. And these were the people that opposed Jesus the most. 
But Jesus had issues with religious, religious people and not sinners. So the question is, why do you think that was? Why do you think it was religious people that had so many issues with Jesus? And why would Jesus have such an issue with so many religious people? Why would that be the case? Does Jesus want us to just go and just no longer care about how we live? We can just go and live sinfully going, okay, these are the people that Jesus loves, so we can just live however we want to. We don't need to be religious because Jesus hates those people. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. We see elsewhere that we are called to be holy because God is holy. We are called to live holy and Christ-like lives. So then why? What was the issue? Well, the issue was this. That the problem with these people in John 2 and in John 8 and in James 2 and Matthew 7 is these people came to Jesus and they said, look at what all I've done. And because of what I've done, this has now, or this at least should, earn me the right standing before God. I have earned my place in heaven. I deserve it. Look at what I've done. I've prophesied in your name. I've cast out demons in your name. I've done many mighty works in your name. Or here in John 2, these were people at the Passover feast who were probably saying, look at all of the rituals that I have kept. I have, ever since I was able to remember, I was bringing a sacrifice every year to Jerusalem at the Passover. I have never missed a single one. Look at the laws that I keep. Look at everything that I'm doing. Yes, okay, I believe in you because you're doing some miraculous things, but I'm going to add you to my set of religious activities. I'll give you a slice out of my week to be able to acknowledge you because of the signs that you're doing. But the message that Jesus came with was something drastically different than that, and it was pressing on the thing that that was at the very core of their identity. Jesus came and said that even the best thing that you have to do even the most righteous acts that you can bring to the table, it's like filthy rags compared to a holy God. That there is nothing that you can do to earn your way back to heaven. That there is nothing. Even the good you think you're doing is so, so evil when you do it on your own. And he came and said, listen, here's the message that I'm bringing. I will live a life of perfection. I will live a righteous life that you never could and I will offer it to you freely. And all of your guilt and all of your sin and all of your shame, give that to me. And if you trust in me alone, if you understand what this message of grace is, that there's nothing you can do to get to heaven, but I have come to take you there. If you'd believe in me, Let go of all the things that you're clinging to that think that you somehow think earn you some sort of love. Let them go and come to me. I am all there is and I am all that you need. And Jesus was pressing on this, this thing that people held to so much worth in themselves, saying, look at all that I've done. Jesus says, you've got to let go of all of it. As Paul writes in uh, Philippians 2, he said he counts it all as trash, as rubbish, as garbage, all the resume that he had. He said, that's nothing. And I count it as nothing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So that's why people hated his message. That's why people ended up killing him. It was because he came and began to press on that. And he said, I'll tell you who the one who's justified 
It's not the one who does everything right and prays and ties and does everything. It's the sinner who comes at the end of the day and he says, God, I am unclean, I am a sinner, and I need you. That man is justified, not the first. And so we see that that's the kind of belief that we see here in John 2. It's the type of belief we see consistently throughout the New Testament. This belief that says, okay, yes, I see Jesus, and he's doing some awesome things. I'm excited to be a part of it, but I want him to be just added to what I am doing already instead of replacing it entirely. So the question then that we look to last is what does true belief look like then? What does true belief look like? If this is in fact what's happening here in John 23, this is a type of false belief. What does true belief look like? Well, I'm um, reminded of a story that I heard a while ago that I began to look up because I always heard it and I thought it wasn't true, but I started to look it up. turns out it is true. So I got all this information from the Smithsonian website, so it has to be true. There was a man in the 1800s named Monsieur Blondin. He was a French guy uh, that came over to America. He was small. Uh, he was uh, not very big. I guess small and not very big mean the same thing. I didn't need to say that. Uh, weighed about 140 pounds. And he was fascinated with the circus growing up. And as he was at the circus, he began watching these one set of people called tightrope walkers. And he saw it was just just captivated by what they were doing. And he began to practice. He began to say, that's what I want to do for my entire life. And so towards the uh, later part of his career, he began, this one, he began to attempt this one feat that he thought, this will put me on the map. He began to be a master tightrope walker, and he set a tightrope up across Niagara Falls to be able to walk across it. This is in the 1800s, mind you. The rope was about 1,300 feet long. It's just under a quarter of a mile. Two inches in diameter. That's not very big. And to think about a rope stretched that far, there's going to be a sag in the middle of that rope. So from where the, um, the ends of the ropes were to the middle was 50 feet down a sag. So not only is he having to go across this, but he's having to go downhill and then uphill 50 feet. So this is this guy saying, okay, here, people crowd around and watch me attempt to try to do this. So about uh, 5 p.m. on the day that he said he was going to do it, thousands of people gathered around, and he took his position on the American side of Niagara Falls. He was dressed in pink tights and bedazzled with spangles. He was an eccentric man and knew what needed to be done. The lowering of the sun made him appear as if he was clothed in light. He wore fine leather shoes with soft soles, and he brandished a balancing pole made of ash that was 20 feet, 26 feet long and weighing about 50 pounds. Slowly and calmly, he started to walk. One man who was there said that his gait was very much like the walk of some barnyard chicken. Children began to cling to their mother's legs. Women peeked from behind their parasols. Several onlookers actually fainted from suspense. About a third of the way across, Blondin shocked the crowd by sitting down on his cable and calling for the maid of the mist which is the little touring vessel in the Niagara Falls that takes you around the bottom. It anchored momentarily beneath him. He cast down a line, hauled up a bottle of wine, drank it, and then started running to the other side. He passed the sagging center, and as he got close to the other end, the band began to play Home Sweet Home, and Blondin reached the other side in Canada. Now, after about 20 minutes of rest, 
he decided that wasn't quite good enough. And so he began his journey back over to America. But this time, he had one of those old uh, cameras strapped to his back. So those cameras, I think we got a picture up where you literally put the thing over your uh, head and take a picture. He strapped it to his back, advanced 200 feet, put his pole down on the rope, untied his load, and then took a picture of the American side with the camera. He then hoisted the camera back on his back and continued on his way. It took about 23 minutes to get across. By the time he appeared on the American side, he, take, he took his balancing pole and was finished. I heard that. And I'm like, there's no way that's true. But then I started to look even more, and there are more stories of what he did on Niagara Falls. He did it again and again. He continued to do something new every time. One time, halfway across, he laid down on the cable, flipped himself over, and then began to walk backwards. He stopped again to take a squig from a flask, and then he made it safely to the Canadian side. On the journey back, he wore a sack over his body so he couldn't see. A few weeks later, there was the uh, President Millard Fillmore is actually in attendance, and he walked backwards from America to Canada. And then he returned back to the United States pushing a wheelbarrow. A few weeks later, he somersaulted and backflipped across the rope, occasionally pausing to dangle himself from the cable with one hand. Monsieur Blondin. Other times, he crossed at night with no locomotive headlights affixed to either side of the cable. He crossed once with his body in shackles. He crossed carrying a table and chair once, stopping in the middle to try to sit down and prop up his legs. This is on a two-inch thick rope, by the way. The chair tumbled into the water and Blondin nearly followed, but he regained his composure, ate a piece of, piece of cake, washed it down with champagne, and then got to the other side. The guy was unbelievable. But in his most famous story, and my favorite, he took a stove and utensils and walked to the center of the cable. He started a fire, cooked an omelet, and lowered it to the maid of the mist below him so that they could eat it. He picked it up and walked to the other side. Unbelievable. It's like he could do anything on this rope. There was nothing that he could not do. And thousands of people were watching and saying, this is unreal. He can literally do anything. And he knew how to work a crowd. He'd get over to the other side and say, who believes in Blondin? Everyone would cheer. We believe in Blondin. And at one point, when he got done with one of his exploits, he was there on the other side of the crowd, and there was thousands pressing in on him. And he asked for the participation of a volunteer. The crowd's applause began to grow louder than the roar of the falls. The, what, he's going to do with, what is he going to do now with someone else? And Blondin suddenly stopped and addressed his audience and said, Do you believe if I can carry a person across Niagara Falls on my back? The crowd went crazy. Yes. Yes, we believe. You are the greatest tightrope walker in the world. You can do anything. Okay, Blondin said. And who wants to get on my back? Silence. No one stepped forward. After a few minutes, his manager, Harry Calcord, stepped forward, got on his back, and Blondin walked across with him on his back, 1,300 feet. But here's what I want to press in on, is that there were these thousands of people who gathered around him, and they watched and were amazed at the things that he was doing. And when asked, they even said, we absolutely believe you can carry someone on your back. But when they were pressed to be the one to step forward, not a single one did. What type of belief is that? A belief that says one thing but does another. 
that's not willing to put your life on the line. Friends, that's the same kind of belief that we see throughout the New Testament. This kind of false belief that says one thing, that sees Jesus doing these amazing signs and wonders, saying, yes, you can do anything, but when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, we go, okay, maybe, maybe we don't want to do that. But true belief, what true belief looks like is stepping forward and hopping on his back and saying, I'll go wherever you take me. My life is in your hands. It is for you to determine. That's the type of belief that Christ is concerned about. He doesn't care about how worthy you feel before coming to him, but he is vastly concerned with how worthy you think he is. This is the type of belief, this type of trust that actually changes us. It begins to get into our lives and change the way that we live. And so that's the question that I want to ask. It's me as I begin to prayer this week, and I want to ask us as a church, is do our lives look like that? Do we have that kind of belief, that kind of trust? One of my favorite movies growing up was a, a Disney movie. I think it was Disney. It may not have been, actually, now that I think about it. But it was a movie. A movie called Blank Check. The movie's about a, a little kid that finds this blank check. It's signed, and it doesn't have anything on it. And it's, uh, the signature is from a guy who's unbelievably rich. So he goes and writes, like, $9 million on it and goes and cashes it and actually goes through. And then he gets $9 million and, like, buys a mansion and a water slide and all sorts of things. And I won't ruin it because it's a great story. You can go and rent it. But my question is for us, do we have a kind of faith that takes our lives and writes a blank check and hands it to God? Say, God, this is my life, and it is yours to fill out however you would like. However you fill it out, I will follow you, because I trust you far more than I trust myself. And you know what is good for my life far greater than I do. And so I will submit to you and say, God, wherever you lead me, I will follow or more specifically, whenever we read parts of the, new, the, the Bible to begin to confront who we are and what we want to do, what is our reaction? Do we step back and go, okay, no, 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 that's not for me. That was probably somehow contextually for that, that culture. It's, that's not for me. I don't need to do that. Or do we go and we begin to submit ourselves to what God has called us to be? Husbands, God has called us to love our wives like Christ has loved the church, to lay our, our lives down, to sacrifice is your life marked by sacrifice to your wife? Are you leading sacrificially like Christ has led the church? Or do we step back and go, okay, no, no, that's not really for me. That was for someone else. Even the way we spend our time or our money, do we come and we say, okay, God, we will submit to you and how you've called us to live? Or do we go, no, 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 that's not for me? Or even tragedy and suffering in our lives. Do we step back and go, there's no way that this could in fact be what God had planned? Or do we look and understand, God, you are sovereign. You are in control of every single moment of our lives. And I don't understand this right now. And I know this hurts, but I trust you. And I will continue to follow you. Because you are good, and I know that everything in my life will somehow work for my good and for your glory. Do we trust him? Are we living with a posture that has open hands saying, God, you have given me everything I have and you can take it if you would like, but I trust you? Or are we living with clenched fists saying, no, I like my stuff. I like my time. I like what I'm doing. God, you can't touch these things. And so the question that I would ask is, 
what in your life looks different because of your belief in Jesus? What in your life has shifted where you've gone, this is how I would live, but I I believe in him, and this is what he's called me to do, and so I will live differently. I will trust him. What choices are you making that don't make sense apart from the gospel? Friends, this is the type of belief I pray for in my life. This is the type of belief I pray for in this church. That we wouldn't be like these Jews here in John 2 or any of the religious people throughout the New Testament who come thinking that somehow we have earned something on our own. But that we would be people who come with open hands. That we don't simply cheer at the thought of Jesus or add him to our list of religious activities. But I pray that we would be a people who trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. Trusting in him alone for our salvation and jumping on his back to follow him wherever he may take us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for being a God that we can believe in. And we do not have to fear you today, tomorrow, for eternity. God, because you have taken our sin away from us. God, you have taken it away as far as the east is from the west, and we will never have to face it again. God, we can stand righteous and secure and confident in you. And God, that we would say with the hymn writer that there is nothing in our hands that we bring. It's simply to the cross we cling. God, thank you so much for coming and dying for us. Help us to believe and trust in you. God, help us to have a true belief and open our eyes if we have a false one. We love you and we thank you so much for your son. It's in his name I pray, amen.